Actually, we're live right now. Where's the... Where's the music? Oh, actually, get it. Okay, click that button. No, the other one. Okay, there we go. First of all, I, I listened a little bit to... This the old Cedars here podcast. The old Cedars here. Cedars here. Cedars here podcast on my way home. Yeah, how long have you been listening to the Cedars here podcast? I, I, I honestly didn't know what it was and I Googled Cedars it. here. Hello Ryan, this is Jesse Diggins. And I, I just thought it was really cool. He says, Pedal, what do you think of my skate ski? Well, you need to have the right information. Put your phones down. Kids. Oh hi, is this the editorial department? Well, actually not quite last. This guy Clugnet back there. A real Hickory High School story there for Great Britain. This is the best question I have had of all questions in 10 years. No, and if Ryan, you were for sure not listening, but if, if you were, you were, I got your email. Got your email. You were, <laughs> no, you're brilliant. This is like exactly, like right, you hit the nail on the head. All right, everyone. Hello, welcome to Shovel Lake Public Radio and the Cedar Skier Podcast. The sec, the third, the fourth. The fifth fastest and largest Nordic ski specific podcast in all of Lake County. Lake County, 10,000 feet here up in Leadville broadcasting. So if any of my takes are a little bit out of sorts or weird, you can blame it on the elevation, I guess. But we are here today. We've got Ajay in the studio with me sitting on her IKEA couch, which actually really isn't an IKEA couch at all. I saw it on the road for free. It sort of looked like it was one of those you know, simple Norwegian design, modern looking things. I'm like, Dude, we got to have that. It's perfect for the sunroom. Turns out, you know, it's kind of actually really uncomfortable to sit on, but Ajay has taken it and made it her own. And every morning at 5 a.m., she is sitting on it waiting. Well, not waiting. She's just, she's just a companion. You know, she's a loyal companion. She's, she has, ever since that I got her, which we got her about a month or two before the pandemic, I mean, she spent almost every moment with me, which is pretty creepy. But I was a band director at Lake County when we first got her, and I was I would bring her to work because we lived really far away. So puppy come to work day every day, and she'd sit in the car in the morning. I'd take her out for walks um, during my breaks. During my lunch, she'd sit in my office. Um, obviously, the pandemic happened, so then everyone was at home as she grew and became afraid of um, all other human life. Uh, I was a remote teacher for the entire following year. So then it was, you know, she was laying at my feet basically throughout every day, training with me a couple of times every day. Uh, and then since then, it's been the same life, you know, and it's been great. So Ajay is way too close to me. Some people have been asking about Ajay, you know, and they were concerned that we had shipped her way to Planitza uh, and to get those audio files and interviews in the mix, which, which I, honestly was a brilliant idea. It was brilliant. Um, and I trained her well. She's a German shepherd. She's smart. She knows how to get through security. She knows how to actually be security. Anyway, moving on. Uh, but <laughs> Ajay's here. She's ready for the show. I'm so pumped to be here. Had hoped to actually broadcast a podcast like right after Holman Cohen. I was thrilled. You know, you know me, guys. I was, I mean, I would have, I would have broadcast Holman Cohen, right? But I, I mean, I was like ready to go Monday. Things just don't really work out. Monday, Monday is actually my off day, but it really is more of an on day because I try to take care of Novi a little bit more. And Novi is growing up. She's getting on skis more. She's shuffling around more. Um, she's got a lot of energy. So Mondays, whether or not I get a podcast in, it's always a little bit up in the air. Then Tuesday happened and it was back to the meat grinder. We've been to gypsum a few times, covering games. Prep season is in full swing. Prep spring sports season is in full swing, I should say. So just been I've been in the car a ton. In fact, that brings me to my first point of the day, the first major A topic of the day. Am I injured over training or over driving? We're not really sure. 
I have a little bit of a soreness on the front of my shin, and I'm pretty sure this was one of those cases where you think it's going to be a great classic striding day, and you don't really nail the wax, but you kind of are already out in the middle of nowhere when you realize it, and you're just slipping around, and and you know that that dorsiflexion on the um, your feet, that muscle in the front, it just it felt sore after this classic ski I did on Monday. I kind of just ran through it, um, and because it hasn't like been so painful. Done done a few more double pull workouts in the afternoon instead of like horsing around on skate skis, but it's it's getting pretty sore. And yesterday I realized as I was sitting in traffic for two hours because of a hazmat spill on the interstate, <laughs> two hours. Okay, I I left to go cover a. Uh, high school lacrosse game that started at 5.30. I left my office at 4.50. I had to drive 20 miles on the interstate. I am in traffic. It's 5.15. We're going nowhere on the interstate. I-70. I'm like, okay, I'm going to miss this game. I'm like zooming, you know, my editor going explain the situation. Um, I kind of wait around. Then I notice like everyone's getting, people realizing their state, this is going nowhere. So we got to get off the interstate. So people are making like the U-turns in the police corners. This is like in Edwards, okay, like big, this is basically New York City for people who live in Leadville, right? Vale, Edwards, the whole works, Beaver Creek. But anyway, I followed the course. I'm like, well, maybe I can swing out of Highway 6 and get down to Gypsum that way. It's parallel, 55 miles an hour, we'll be fine, right? I'll get there, shoot a couple pictures in the third quarter, and we can still make this thing happen. But as I'm going back to the interstate, by the way, I'm seeing people pulling the same U-turn just in the middle of the ditch. This is how crazy people are in Vale. They, they are kind of we can be a little bit crazy sometimes. <laughs> like we got places to go, people to be, people to see, all that kind of stuff. Well, anyway, I'm winding through these roundabouts. Apparently, everyone is obviously has the same idea I do. So I, it took me 20 minutes to get to Highway Six, and then it was stopped traffic on Highway Six. 6:30 p.m. I have now made it equal the one mile distance. Like I'm now equal to where I was when I left the interstate an hour prior. And I'm just like, I've missed the whole game. There's nothing I can do. So I turn around, I'm heading back to Leadville. I got to figure out how to cover the sports page. And this is the icing on the cake. I get back on the interstate going the other way, you know, cruising through Minturn, starting to go up and over Battle Mountain Pass. Right before the first um, switchback, I see this huge like, um, cat, you know, the things with the, um, uh, the huge shovel in front, like that, the, not, not a snow. Well, it was, that? it was like a snow removal thing, but it looked not, not a snow removal, like car. It was one that like could pick up stuff and make a big epic snow fort. And I'm like, what is, who is this guy? He's going 15 miles an hour. I've been in my car all day. And this is when I started to realize the constant pushing on the gas pedal and brakes. Maybe this is aggravating my injury and it's not really anything to do with my training at all, which would give me license to just keep pouring on the training. I just got to get out of the car, right? But anyway, I rip around this guy and I turn up the first switch pack and there is 30 cars lined up, (laughs) stopped. And I sit there for five minutes. The guy just passed the big truck. He comes by, removes something like maybe there was an avalanche or a rock slide. I'm not even really sure. I sat there for 30 minutes and then proceeded to go over Battle Mountain Pass behind the slowest semi-truck um, you could possibly go up and over this sketch pass, 15, 20 miles an hour tops, got home to Leadville at 8.15. So I got in my car at 4.50, planning to cover a prep game, did not cover that game, drove all the, you know, like didn't cover anything, and then got home at 8.15. That is my life in the last couple of days. So if you've been itching for a podcast, now you know there was the opening monologue. Now, in terms of skiing, let's get right into the action. What did we have going on? We had the Holman colon take place on Saturday and Sunday, and the big news of the day was 50Ks for both men and women. And uh, the the other big, there's really a lot of stories here, because I would say the next big story is Jesse Diggins has a great performance in the women's race, lives up to the billing, um, the, the men's race, Swept by Norwegians in the top 10. So it's still, I thought, an exciting race, but definitely not as exciting as the women's race, for sure. Um, and we didn't have an American contingent in there. The The third kind of story that's come up a little bit here is the people who didn't compete, being that this was right after World Championships. So let's get let's talk about that issue first. I've heard some people blame Fist and get all over Fist for this. Um, I thought Keegan Randall said something really apt on the broadcast, which was, you know, this is the Holman Cullen Stadium is in pretty high demand. You've got biathlon events going there. You've got a lot of stuff going on. Like to to fit this, obviously this is a marquee event. 
it's the Super Bowl of skiing and and everything. But you still have to try. They're, they're working around a lot of scheduling issues, so it's not so much like, you know, um, any any Italian, Norwegian, Swedish coaching conglomerate could go up and go, hey, we really need those eleven days of rest before our athletes can come back from the World Champs fifty k. Like, I mean, come on. So, you know, the well, I think six days was it six days between the guys, right? Because they went from Sunday to Saturday. Um, and then the girls actually got kind of a, the bonus going from Saturday to the next Sunday. So they, they got two extra days of rest before their race, which is huge. I think it's kind of a moot point no matter what. I mean, um, for one thing that world, the world champs 50 K let's just be honest, master arts 50, 50 Ks. These are not the same thing as an individual start 50 K where it's like full gas from the wire or full gas from the start all the way, you know? So if if you view the world champs 50k really as 30k of L2 and then 20k of hustle and and two and a half k of sprint, I mean, like coming back from that isn't that crazy. And we even have proof here on the World Cup. Like Astrid Slynn, she goes world champs 30k, Vasilope at 90k, you know, Holman Cullen 50k, Birkin 54k. Uh, there, she's a elite athlete and is proving that. You know, she can pile on volume and it's not just a double pole fest all the way through. Like she's just kind of going, no, I'm fine. I can race these. These are high level athletes. They've trained a bunch. It's not that ridiculous to expect them to be able to pull off two great 50Ks in a six day span. I mean, furthermore, hey, shout out to Andrew Castney, right? He posts on Facebook three straight weekends of 50Ks, right? There's a lot of citizens racers who who do that too. I mean, I did three 50Ks in like eight days because I did back-to-back in Minnesota and then came back into the alley loop last year. And, I mean, I know, listen, right, Ryan, that's not the World Cup. I get it. I get it. I get it. But, um, and it's not Holman Cohen either. That's a monster of a course. But I think it is it's it is overblown. And I'm glad Devin Kershaw brought that up on his recent show, kind of saying, come on, guys, you got, you got to, like, suck it up. Like, be tough. Um, I will say the thing that I find kind of interesting is – why did they have the guys stay on Saturday and have the girls go Sunday? To me, that's a little weird because the girls raced shorter at the world champs and they raced the day before the guys. So put them on the marquee event then. And this would have been a perfect year to do it too because the fact that you had the first ever women's 50K, it's, it give them the big day. The right Saturday, I think, is the day that's a little more, um, there's usually more fans or whatever. I mean, it looked to me to be pretty packed for both, but if one of the days is the is the bigger day and it's Saturday and the women raced the previous Saturday and the men were on Sunday, why would you why would you hamstring the men even more in that regard? I thought that was that was kind of weird. I'm, I'm not sure if it would have affected much. I mean, you know, whatever. But but I thought that was a an interesting call there by Fiss in terms of this scheduling discussion. Now, as far as my notes go where where was i talking what was the next thing diggins diggins having a good race yeah i think i think she did i thought i thought it was exciting i hope you guys out there probably watching are like yeah that was a fun 50k for sure we saw a lot of uh a lot of haymakers getting thrown obviously diggins did everything she she should have done from both the racing standpoint and trying to capitalize on all of those preem points as well so she's out there crushing it unfortunately tierra lunas vang was tracking her pretty closely doing the damage control. Um, but then Diggins, you know, stays in the mix and and finishes out the race, really had a great shot to win it. Um, and I think the only thing that I'm thinking she might go look back on with this race with a just a little bit of regret is her skis were the fastest in that of that final trio, really of the final pack of 10 or 12 who were kind of in it and with 5K to go. I mean, did you see some of those crazy downhills where she almost looked like she was getting dropped and then she caught back up one of them um so, uh, chad goes you know like is, is dickens getting dropped here or something like that because it really looked like she was like she was done she had spent her gas and all the little sprint points and and maybe she wasn't gonna be able to go and keegan's like no i think she's gonna be fine like there's this downhill she'll be able to find a slipstream and, and come right back and i mean yeah that's true but 
I mean, she she like closed up a gap that was not slipstream related before getting the slipstream and then glide. She was gliding way past other skiers. And you saw that in the final home, home stretch as well, or I guess the the horseshoe, the, the straightaway before the final straightaway. She was gliding, gaining ground and really going. And, um, you know, after you find out like, yep, she's struggling with cramps. Like I'm imagining what was going through her head even in in the throughout the second half of the race is wow I've got great skis but I need to keep I need to keep my like uh, my body in check here you know because you know if you if when you're getting those cramps in a long race you can kind of feel them coming on and they they dissipate and it's like one random step or push gets the cramps coming back and I'm sure Diggins was was feeling that and kind of going all right damage control here right and and can I when can I really go all out? And I would guess even that final straightaway, you know, she just really wasn't able to um, to push it quite as hard, you know, as she would have liked, which is a bummer because if anyone is the perfect, you know, image bearer of the winning, you know, the, the first female winner of the first 50K at Holman Colon, it would have been Diggins. She's been vocal about this equal distance. She's, uh, it just fits, you know? Um, and, and I think that that was a little bit of a disappointment. Now the other thing in terms of that final three, it looked to me like Slind was in the driver's seat, which also would have been a fun storyline. I would have loved it as a double pull guy, you know, watching our ski classics hero heroine in there, mixing up in the world cup and just destroying people, especially in the skate technique. I mean, people were kind of saying like, well, you know, she's a phenomenal classic skier. She does ski classics, so that makes sense. But we saw the surprise at World Champs where she could stay with him in the skate and now here in Holman Colon. And I was just like, yes, Slynn is going to win. That is awesome. And she's she's the person who, like, you know, going back to that discussion of is this too early? Well, if anyone could complain about that, it's her. And she's, like, racing multiple professional circuits right now. So if she wins, you can't complain. Um, I don't know how she lost it. And I, that's that was I was baffled. I'm like, Diggins has the fastest skis. Slind looks the best and is in the lead. And somehow, neither one of them won. Uh, cool little photo finish, though, anyway. And yeah, I mean, I guess on that point with Astrid, too, one thing I'm kind of feeling, and I, I sense this in my own skiing, too, just since I do a lot of double pull. Um, and, and you know, those of you out there who are, technique nerds you understand that the double pole is one of the fundamental body movement patterns for cross-country skiing and especially like the v2 you see right you know it's obvious how it fits in um and then if you have have worked on your balance you have a good fundamental body position for skating your, your double pole motion is it's very similar to the double pulling motion in the v2 and everything's just working together and my uh, philosophy slash realization is, you know, if you can double pull up a slope, you should be able to V2 that slope for sure. And you um, you should probably be able to V2 a slightly steeper slope than what you can double pull. And at least in my own skiing, you know, that 4 to 6% incline is certainly double pullable. And I mean, I can double pull steeper than that, but I, I point out that 4 to 6% range is like, that's that's where I could double pull faster than I would classic stride. You know what I mean? Um, and yes, I could double pull up a 10% slope, but but if I'm not sprinting, you know, if I had to double pull 10% for 40 minutes or classic stride for 40 minutes up that same slope, you know, I'm probably going faster classic striding, whatever. And, and my point is, though, I felt that transfer to my skating, even though I'm not a great skater, like I'm, I'm, I'm using the V2 technique well, um, at, at these slopes that I'm also double pulling well. And I wonder with Slind how much that has helped her skating because yeah, there's obviously, and obviously there's a fitness component, you know, if you're a double pull person, you're just putting in way, way more volume. So even if the course has a lot of steep hills, like Holman Colon does, where you're not always V2ing, like she's going to be able to bounce back from pushing herself over the red line much easier, much better than some of these other skiers who are used to, you know, focusing on sprints, 10Ks, even 5Ks, 20Ks, 
you know, there's, there's not enough 50Ks on the calendar for them to be specialized for that. So Slynn can bounce back from that. But her V2, I bet, is just more efficient than an equivalent skier, an equivalent skate skier to Slind would not be able to V2 as well as Slind does because she has the double pole benefit. If that didn't make sense, <laughs> I understand. But um, I mean, I guess basically if you just took a carbon copy technique wise of Slind, but took away her double pole training and then Slind herself, like she's going to be skating a lot better because of that, that double pole strength. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about double pole when, as it relates to drama in here on my show notes. But yeah, I think I think we're seeing now that like that has paid off for her. And maybe it's because she started in the World Cup background, has kind of gone back and forth. I think that's a good argument to make because I don't think my argument would hold like, oh, let's just take ML Pearson in here and have see how he does skating against the men. Uh, no, like I I'm not I have no idea what his, you know, skate skiing background was and maybe that's enough of a difference you know sure fair enough um but yeah anyway i think if you're someone out there applying to you guys you folks if you're a citizens racer and skating is your big thing you know skating in the berkey skate ski racing um i think doing a fair amount of double pull training uh and i know this isn't like rocket science breaking news here but i think that's huge and i think maybe you know something you could think about adding that's maybe is more breaking is try double polling specifically up a little bit steeper slopes if you haven't like you don't have to push yourself going up 14 percent slopes and look like a weirdo but it, you know building that endurance so that like a steady four percent grade could be held for a long time just double polling is, is really going to make you confident and a good v2 skier up a very similar grade and i just find in a lot of the lower level level citizens races that I'm in that people don't V2 up very, very many climbs, even ones that they definitely should. Uh, and I talked to another friend of mine too, and he was kind of talking about how, you know, out here in Colorado, we have some climbs that are just so long. It's pretty hard to V2 at 9,000 feet for 25 minutes. I think there's some truth to that, but I think that's more on us to get more efficient as skate skiers. Like if you can double pull for 20 minutes up a 4% grade, pretty easily then you should be able to skate ski up that pretty easily too you just got to get relaxed find the timing and and really transfer that over is that what's happening with slind i don't know maybe i'm overthinking it too much either way it was fun to watch her get into it a couple things here i think it's the 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 sport hill slow-mo moments of the um event you know sport hill helping me out personally as a skier i love sport hill been training in their gear since i was a youngster back in fargo Moorhead. <laughs> I should say Moorhead. I, I grew up in Moorhead. Ugh, Fargo. But if I say Fargo, people know where it is. Growing up there as a runner, I used Sport Hill stuff. And Sport Hill has outfitted me uh, quite a bit this year for winter cross-country skiing. And I love their cross-country ski pants and jackets, especially. Uh, these these are kind of gears. That, these are the, This is the kind of gear that you can like wear a hundred times and it won't get smelly. My Sport Hill slow-mos from the 50K, first of all... Um, did you guys see Jesse Diggins' dad with the fishing pole? The fishing pole flag? Great shot. I was telling this to my wife as I'm watching it, drinking my coffee, trying to practice trumpet at the same time. And I'm like, oh, they, oh, first we, we saw these fans, you know, holding an American flag. And I'm like, oh, keep an eye out for Jesse Diggins' dad. I saw on, you know, her Facebook story that, you know, I saw her him like trying to fashion a flag to a fishing pole or something like that. And it was like two seconds later and we saw the fishing pole with the flag. Great to see some American spirit there. Now, speaking of that, how did Chad Semela not point out the Minnesota Wild fans sitting by himself in a Holman Cullen Stadium? This was amazing. And it, it was just like, hey, if you're from Minnesota, like Chad is, you got you. how do you not catch that? State of hockey. Blue line runs around it. Mom was the referee, right? You got to catch the, uh, the Minnesota Wild flag or Minnesota Wild-wearing person who was at Holman Cullen. I'd love to know who that was, who was wearing a Minnesota Wild jersey and is watching the Holman Cullen. It was amazing. That is at 52 minutes and 55 seconds. If you want to go back and watch it, there he was. I think I would have had a good joke of some sort ready. You know, here's, especially, there's so much conversation going on to that race about Diggins herself. You know, tie something in about being from Minnesota, okay? Um... Those are my two kind of uh, big pointers there, especially on the girls' side. Um, 
Moving over to the guy's side, the guy's race, Kruger with the win. <clears throat> Thought that was cool. You know, I was kind of trying to, I guess, muttering to myself, oh, you know, Linsky, Kruger, um, Hans Christer Holand, that whole connection right there in Oslo. Um, I, I was imagining, hey, I bet Kruger, like, watched this as a kid, you know. And sure enough, post-race, you know, we get these interviews from him and um, a couple other athletes as well who grew up either as forerunners or came to this event and saw it when they were younger and were inspired. And so pretty pretty cool moment for Kruger to win on that account in front, you know, just in his hometown, the biggest race that there is in the world. And then also the redemption from not getting the start in the world champs, which apparently he was upset about. I, I don't get that. I was almost expecting us to find out that he was like not upset about that going, hey, this is a chance for me at my the peak of my career, a 50K mass start skate at Holman Cole. I'm like, the, the stars have aligned. I'm going to go for that. So I'm a little bit shocked that um, I heard that, that he was still kind of a little bit fuming about not getting the start in the classic world champs. I think that's weird. Like he would have gotten fifth. No one would have cared. And then he might have been too tired for this event. I don't know. So I think it was a it was good for him. And I still think the coaches made the right call by not not giving him that start in in the classics. Now, now I guess the argument of, hey, he's having a legendary worlds. You just got to let that let that horse ride it out. I guess I get that too. That's not a bad argument. Um, I'm willing to willing to go along with it, but I think everything worked out perfectly here for Kruger. You know, he wins, wins the Holman Cohen in a very dominating or exciting, dominating fashion. I would say it wasn't like he won by five minutes, you know, so it wasn't that dominant, but it was still, he was, he was the class of the field. And that was pretty cool. Um, a little bit shocked. I guess I shouldn't have been shocked. I should have known better. But I was a little shocked, actually, that Klaba was even, like, in the field. Because of all the people to drop out, I was thinking, he's going to be the guy I was going to. Then I realized, oh, yeah, there's all these World Cup points up for grabs. Yeah, he's got to go snag some of those. Um, and, you know, given given how the race played out as I was watching it, you know, a little bit of cat and mouse throughout the early portions, I sort of thought maybe Klaba actually has a pretty good chance here to compete for the win. You know, because if these guys hang around long enough, why not? Um, I I think that's what you get, though, when you have such a demanding world championship schedule and then you try to race a really tough 50K in a discipline that you're not that amazing with. Um, I think that's that's the difference there. Like, So if I start the show by saying, oh, six days is plenty, yeah, it is, unless you race every single race like Clabo and you have the weight of the world like Clabo on every race. So we saw him a little bit fatigued. He he ends up, you know, still finishing the top 10 and and grabbing some good World Cup points, but he didn't he he didn't look like he was fighting for the championship there, which I think this is a good time to talk about when if Clabo will ever get that Holman Colon win because I mean, you got to think that is a race, a resume race, you know, like are you really in the conversation as the greatest of, of all time, if you haven't won at Holman Cohen yet. That's a little bit like saying, yeah, he's the greatest baseball baseball player of all time, but he's never even won the MVP award. Like, is that actually possible? I would say no. Um, maybe that's too far, though. I think Clavo, the, the reason I bring this up is that race is always going to be at kind of an inopportune time uh, before, after world championships, end of the year. What if it's in skate? What if it's classic, but he just gets unlucky like he has in the world champs 50 Ks, you know, at this point, Clabo has been, you know, stripped of a 50 K world title. You could argue, you know, he was in, he shouldn't have been stripped of that. And then play second in this world championships, he he's he has zero 50k world championship wins, and he almost has two at the same time. Uh, and, and it's like, wow, I, I, is is Clavo actually unlucky? Which is a bizarre question to ask when you think about his record in sprint races and how he is always in the final. You know, and he's uh, he's always avoiding trouble, never breaks poles. Like he, he's either the luckiest or the savant, right? But but yet he's a little bit cursed in this 50k distance. And yeah, I just I wonder, you know, what if uh, they, I heard, you know they're talking about maybe we don't have Holman Cole in the year of, of Trondheim. You have stuff like that happen where he just misses out, and all of a sudden. He's 33, and he's not really a favorite 
to win Holman Colin and he just his career ends without it happening. It would be kind of an interesting thing um, if he if he went that far without capturing that race. Um, yeah. Uh, other thoughts on Holman Colin I have here. I'm looking down at my show notes and uh, talking about the legacy. Oh yeah, here's the thing. I, I brought up Kruger right watching it as a youngster. Anderson, same thing. Clabo, same thing. What it's inspired them. We talk a lot about here is how we can, you know, make it so Norway's not so dominant and so much better than everyone else. This is the conversation amongst, you know, the armchair quarterbacks like myself. Although, as you know, if you've listened to enough shows, I'm not someone saying that. I'm not, I am actually, I'm not someone who's like, the sport is terrible. The Norwegians are so far ahead. It's ridiculous. I'm a lot more of a, hey, pump the brakes, right? They haven't been dominant for the last 20 years in the way they are right now. And if the Russians were here, who knows what it would look like? So, no, I'm I'm not saying there's some sort of um, systemic issue. However, I have to think that if you get to host multiple World Cups in your country every year, including the very biggest one, um, you are, you have a massive advantage in this inspirational act you know inspirational facet you know these guys uh we we don't realize how important that is to have the kids watching the race aspiring to be those people to have the billboards have clabo on them um that's why we dominate and destroy everyone in the world in every other sport right except for cycling but or, or you know some of these other sports where you go yeah who name two american cyclists can you the average person can't but everyone knows who LeBron James is, you know, everyone knows who the big time stars are in the major sports, the Patrick Mahomes. This this uh, is huge because even though you might think it's a little bit of a long shot miracle story that, oh, little Billy was watching, you know, at Theodore Worth at that World Cup and then was inspired to go on and win an Olympic gold medal and just happened to work harder than everyone else on the planet, including all the Norwegians. Yeah, I get it. That's a little bit of a long shot story unless you have five or six World Cups in Minnesota every single year or in the Midwest and, and in North America all the time. Then it becomes embedded into the culture. It becomes a little bit more normal, you know, and, and you, you, you better bet that there are a lot of girls right now, young girls coming up who it, were inspired by Jesse Diggins, who look up to her, who now realize it's possible. You know, that that's important. But Norway, it's like they've got the total corner on the market on this attribute, um, and, and I think it's ridiculous. I think if there's one thing that I'm mad at fists for, and I think coaches should try to really argue for, or at least, you know, advocates who are like, we got to figure out how to make this more equal. How about having consistent annual World Cups in North America? And not to mention the actual advantage of now our athletes don't have to spend seven months, you know, living out of a suitcase. Like, th- this won't be that hard. Here's what you could do. The tour to ski, after the tour to ski, there's two There's two options. One is you actually just plan the tour to ski to happen in North America. You know, you bounce from Lake Placid up to Quebec, maybe run one in Vermont or something like that. Like, figure out some of those venues that are close on the East Coast, then fly to Theodore Worth or the Berkey venue, or both, right? Worth and Berkey, fly to Soldier Hollow, finishing Canmore. Like, you, you could... You could definitely do this in a way that would capture the imagination of the North American fans. And yeah, is it a little more travel than in Europe? Sure. But I mean, it's a tour, you know, like that's what it's about. You don't have to crisscross the entire U.S. either. You could keep it located to just the East Coast or East Coast and Midwest one year and then the Salt Lake Canmore another year. Um, I don't know. Like, I think that is definitely doable. Um, so you could go tour to ski plus three weekends after keep them all in North America. That way our athletes after the last period, one race, they can fly home for Christmas. They get to have that advantage and then they can stay there. Um, and if you're in Norway, you can, you can spend Christmas with your family and then fly over for the tour to ski. Uh, and instead, we've got Americans who are like after period one, they're like, oh, maybe I'll fly home quick and see fam- relatives before Christmas. Or, oh, no, I'm going to train in a hut in the middle of Sweden for 10 days, you know, to get ready for the tour to ski. Like they're faced with this impossible logistical thing. And, and this would be the most, the, the, the most uh, you know, foundational route 
to improve Nordic skiing in these other countries or in North America. You, you, you have to have World Cups here. Like, you, you got to do it. The other way, okay, fine. Let's say you do the tour to ski in Europe. How about have them come over after that? There's that two-week break. People could travel, get situated, um, have have three straight World Cups that are in North America in, in straight weekends all the way through mid-February. And then return for either the World Championships, if it's a World year, um, or back to Scandinavia for some of these marquee events. I, I think that's that's like actually a, a pretty good idea that would allow our culture to be inspired and grow. Um, and I'm glad we've got Theater Worth. We have some events coming next year, but I mean, how, how ridiculous is it that we've had to fight this long for it? And then on top of that, we actually had the Theater Worth thing with COVID and then, you know, it gets canceled the day before and it takes four years to get that back on the calendar. I mean, I know they're making these decisions a long time in advance, but this is urgent and it should be, it, it just shouldn't be, I, I don't know how, how are people, if, if the Norwegians, Finns and Swedes and everyone over there is like, we, we got, no, no, we got to have all the World Cups in our country, every single one, you know, it's like, come on, that's not fair. Or, or I guess you can have it in Davos in Italy, you know, like, I think it's, it's just super spoiled and, and yeah, it's, it's crazy. Like when you look at the Canadians, the Americans, what they put up with and just don't even like say much about it. Like we hear about the stories and yep, life in the World Cup, it's a different beast, but uh, you know, I, I just think, yeah, give them a little bit of that feel. And, you know, the the world doesn't revolve around Central Europe. I think I've said that before. <laughs> so that's what I was thinking in terms of the Holman Cohen scheduling issue. I guess uh, that's where I'd have to go. Okay, the, the other A topic here from this 50K thing, and I tease it as sort of the first thing, is this whole idea of equal distances, uh, the drama kind of around that, the move towards it. Um, and this is, this is what I'll say, first of all, okay, first of all, I think at the pro level, there should be equal distances. And when you look at what, what we have with track and field and the equal distance is there, it makes sense. It works. So pro skiing, it's archaic to some degree to have the different distances. That's where I'm at from a physiological entertainment standpoint. Um, I've heard some people say, well, and on that point, like, I, I don't think there's actually people out there arguing against the equal distances who are, like, genuinely concerned that women don't have the fitness to handle a 50K. Like, that's just absurd. I mean, all you have to do is go to go to a couple podunk, you know, citizens races. There's There are men and women who train like nine skis a year and then go race a 50k at the Berkey, you know, like this happens all the time. So there's, there is no argument for like, I just don't think the female body can handle 50k distance. Like that's ridiculous. And I I don't think there's people who say that. I think it's, it's kind of stupid, honestly, when athletes who are pro equal distance will bring that up, you know, like we're living in that sort of a dark age. So no, and and honestly, I think that's a, a little bit of a misunderstanding of even that sentiment. Like I do understand that there there was there is good historical backing for like crazy people, coaches, you know, race directors going no 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 like women can't do a marathon running, you know. So I, I get that that exists, but I think there's actually there's more behind that. I'm not going to get into that now, but basically, yeah, the physiological thing. It's a, it's a dumb argument to say that like women couldn't do it, and I'm for it at the pro level. I think there's maybe a discussion at some of the development levels, both in skiing, in running, and biking, and all that stuff, because um, take, take cross-country running, a sport I'm familiar with. I grew up running a 5K distance. Girls did 4K in Minnesota. Um, the race times are very similar. In fact, you know, at the, at the highest, highest level, well, yeah, actually, actually almost identical. Like the best girls are maybe breaking 15. The best guys are maybe breaking 15. You know, so it, it, from a training perspective, like our workouts were very similar because we were training for an exact, the race time was very similar. Um, I don't I don't really know how coaches now are training that 5K distance because you've definitely got women who are maybe running out there for like 25 minutes. That's that's how long I would race an 8K. My 8K training looked a heck of a lot different than my 5K training. So are we now training those individuals like you would train a collegiate male for an 8K? I think that's absurd. 
you know. Um, now, what's also absurd is at the collegiate level, <laughs> you've got like guys racing a 10K and girls racing a 6K at D1. That's stupid too. Like those athletes should be more equal distance. The more elite they are, the the more it makes sense to make them race the same distance. The lower the level, the more it makes sense to look at race time. And and maybe I mean I don't have a I don't have a seven year old yet. I've got two girls, by the way. So if if you're like, who's this white male talking about this stuff? Um, but I, I would imagine in at, when they're five, six, and seven, it might actually kind of come back where it could be equal again. You know, everyone runs the mile run in PE. I don't think that's a problem at our track meet in fifth grade all city like you don't need to try and figure out different distances for all those kids just just let them run you know um but yeah so i think there's maybe a discussion there there's been some ongoing debate on facebook related to this so i i'm not i don't claim to be an expert there and like at junior nationals here everyone doing a 7 7.5k i'm not like up in arms like i can't believe you know these these poor girls are being forced to race farther I'm not really in that camp. I'm not really in the other camp. I don't really know what camp I should be in. I will say, I think it's absurd if you are a coach to approach like 12-year-old girls and 12-year-old boys or 15-year-old girls and 15-year-old boys as if they are the same because they're not. Physically, biologically, they are not the same. And I think that's, that is dangerous if you're not considering um, the needs of your athletes. So yeah, I mean like, Think about think about the different biological changes in, in a girl's body that are taking place during puberty. Like it's it's not the same, and and the psyche of men and women is different as well, too. So like I'm, the coaches I had, um, I've had some coaches that were amazing coaches working with women, guys who were good with women, women who were good with women, and vice versa. You know where where I've seen some female coaches be really good with men. You know and. Um, and men who are good with men too. It, it's a, there's a reason that that exists. It's because men and women aren't interchangeable. And this is, I think, the, the key point I'd like to emphasize on the show is in America, we, we, um, we can't get through our heads that women and men can be equal in value but not be interchangeable. And that's where that is the like philosophical principle I think more people need to remember is like look men and women are equal in value. We are. We all affirm that. We affirm that. But men and women aren't interchangeable and that's a huge difference. So if you are arguing for equality in some regard and it's it's because you feel that there is an uh, offensive attack on like the equality, then maybe we just need to go here. Like, why are you arguing for this? Is it is it actually the right thing to do? You know, we all affirm that you are um, equal in value, you know, and and maybe someone needs to come into the conversation and kind of explain that. Like, look, that we're not saying that that you can't dream as big or all those things, and. I know that the you know the rebuttal to that is well when you make us race equal distances that's the message we're hearing. Okay, but like that that might again because of because of an insecurity that you're not realizing that that we are indeed affirming your value as of as a woman as a man. Uh, but yeah, I think you know we saw in the, the Heidi Vane comments where she makes like in Europe they're not as they're not as hell bent to that like thesis basically that. If if everything's not equal, then I don't feel like we're equal in value. Euro- Europeans they don't they don't they don't see it that way. You know they're they are more quote old school. Well, there's a reason that that old school thing exists is because it does um, align with a lot of truth. The fact that men and women are different but equal in value. You can affirm those things. Now there was a little bit of a shock. I think you know, Stadloper was kind of like actually I don't even know if we can do 50k. Okay, that's different. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, so don't misrepresent me either. You know, my personal belief is I'm working from a place that I think men and women are equal in value, but they're but men and women are also different in nature. They can have different dispositions. And that's not that's not to say like all men have the exact same type of masculinity and femininity balance. Like there are there are different um proportions of that in indiv- in individuals across the board. Um, but I think there is something to be said that masculinity in and of itself exists and so does femininity. And we're sort of losing our compass when it comes to those two things. When we harp over 
equality because we think it is um, an offense to value and that those things are intertwined. So when I approach this conversation of equal distance, I am not really approaching it at all with that philosophical idea because I have that in another box on the other shelf. Like, hey, look, you know, I you're equal in value to me. I I, I want to affirm that, you know, and then, and then I'm trying to decide, okay, at the junior level, does it make sense to have equal distance? Why or why not? At the pro level, why am I not? And I think that's partially why, honestly, like at the pro level, I'm kind of for the equal distance because I think it's a little weird. These are all elite athletes. Like, you know, even in a 50K, if they're finishing 20 minutes differently, that's not that much. I don't, I don't care. You know, like I think, I think, and I don't think it was that much. It was probably less than that here on Sunday. So I'm I'm not trying to straddle the fence either and be like, uh, make everyone agree. I'm sure some of the things I said there are like you may, you maybe don't agree with or maybe they even offend you. I'm I'm not trying to be offensive at all. I I really am not. And I think you know if the, if it is, try to respect my opinion as well. But ultimately, like I think based on my opinion, I would have to say having the 50k equal distance. This is this is quote progress. But I think it's a different kind of progress than some of the athletes who think it's progress believe it is. Because, again, like I don't think there's a whole lot of athletes on the on the um, we shouldn't have equal distance camp. I don't think they're like, oh yeah, and I definitely think that because men race farther, they're better and stronger, and and uh, I mean physically they 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 have more testosterone. There's a, there's a scientific stronger, but but when I say stronger, I'm saying more like in the, you know. Um, I'm not even sure like the, in a spiritual sense, not, not really spiritual sense, but in like a belief sense, you know, like I might be able to bench press or a man might be able to bench press more than a woman, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's stronger in the sense I'm talking about. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of where these debates get, get kind of heated because I think people are talking through one another. They're, they're using the same words, but meaning something different, you know? So someone might go, like a Heidi Vang saying, hey, men are stronger than, than women, and so they should race farther. And then someone else goes, I don't think they're stronger. Well, on a scientific level, like, uh, you know, the law of averages, law of biology, like Heidi Vang's right. But on, the, on another, on a different level, you know, the argument that, hey, like, uh, you know, a woman is definitely capable of setting goals and like chasing after those things and being tough and determined and persevering through this distance. That's, that's not something that's like unique to men. And, and I would agree with that. Um, so there it is. There's, there's my equal distance. And I'm sorry if it, if it seems like we're going down a rabbit trail there, um, you know, in terms of like my philosophical idea of like, we are equal in value and, and obviously, you know, skilogen, I'm, I'm affirming those things based on my Christian faith. If you think that's like a rabbit trail not related to this discussion, just again, consider that, well, when I'm coming to debate this issue, I'm not bringing all this other baggage that has to do with uh, what kind of message is this sending? Like, no, I, I want what's best for people. And I'm not, I don't think choosing a distance has to be connected to their value or their worth because I don't believe that men and women are interchangeable. So I think it's okay for us to have different distances and keep a sense of um, equality, truly. So that's uh, that's where we go. Now, that's all the 50K chatter I have. Dramen, just a quick little wrap-up here. The Drama World Cup sprints, I kind of fast-forwarded a little bit through. I, I blipped through, watched uh, Ben Ogden in his semifinal, watched Kern in the semi in the final. Um, so great performances. Um by Kern and Ogden, I think, you know, still waiting for Ogden to get through to that final there. I, I don't have a lot of breaking apart, you know, dissecting the Americans in any way. Um, I will say, watching that race, I was like, wow, this is kind of like a course set up for, if you have the fastest skis, you're going to win this. You know, just the way it's set up with that monster downhill where they're getting up to 60 miles, 60 kilometers an hour and I felt like in the final, Clabo didn't have to do anything to find himself into the lead, which, I mean, he's always, he's the best, he's got the best technique, he's got the best strategy, and he's got the best skis, so why not? He's probably going to end up there anyway, but it felt to me like, for some reason, this race, it seemed more obvious that he floated into the front <laughs> mysteriously. Well, actually, on that drag, on the backstretch, you, you probably noticed uh, Richard Juve 
like double polling to try and keep pace with a tucked clabo. There's your first sign right there. Like, you know, he was he was just effortlessly moving away. Um, so that that was like the evil, cynical side of me feeling like, well, okay, if you have the fastest skis, you're gonna win this race. On the flip side, it seemed like in the girls' race, she said kind of you know, she had to earn every piece of that. And she was like out for vengeance, out for blood. You didn't put me on the team sprint. Watch me work now. Um, and that was kind of cool to see. So maybe I'm wrong there or maybe I'm right. And yeah, Klotbo's skis were a class of the field and it kind of helped. Now that's not to take away. He had a nice double pole sprint finish and that was cool to see those angles uh, of the double pole form because, I, you know, I like to analyze World Cup double pole form as I <laughs> spent a large portion of the show already discussing. Um, and he really pulled away and made it look easy. Uh, go, going back to the Clabo lucky, unlucky discussion. Uh, my other unlucky thing for Clabo was last year losing that sprint globe. That was crazy. I mean, you know, he thought it was wrapped up and when he had the COVID diagnosis, he was not really that worried about it. And all of a sudden Juve pulls off exactly what he needs to and wins a couple of races and just steals it from him. That's the kind of stuff that's that is really unlucky. And the only reason we don't really hang on that too much is Clabo has so many globes, he doesn't even know where to keep all of them in his closet. Uh so yeah, he he is I think today uh on Tuesday was out a little bit to show everyone in Norway like remember how I wasn't here? Yeah, you missed a pretty good show. You know, and he wanted to show everyone that uh he's still the king. And speaking of some Clabo stats, I got a few here for you. Going into the weekend, where we will see, what's the, we got Falun, where are we going? Uh, Falun, this weekend, is, just letting it load, 10k individual start, classic, and then a sprint free, ooh, and then a relay, 4x5k. Um, when I did my last relay broadcast, it was after the alley loop, and I remember thinking, oh no, I've got no energy. Plus, it's a relay. What, what's even going to go on? That was a really exciting race. I mean, we saw the Italians kind of come out, and, and Pellegrino had a nice last leg. I thought that was actually pretty cool, and, and a lot of the big guns were out there. Clabo wasn't, but uh, anyway, so that's what we got on tap in the sprint freestyle. So here's some facts. Clabo, he's won 37 individual World Cup sprint events. That's 20 more than the next man. Seven of the 10 individual sprint events in the World Cup this season. Um, and only two other times as a man won at least eight. That was Clabo, obviously, in 2018 and 2019. He's won 29 of the last 33 individual events and finished second in the other four. That's still one of the most ridiculous, amazing facts. He's won... He was fifth in the individual. Okay, so one of these back 2017 when he was a young pup finished fifth in Falun in 2017, and he's won all four individual World Cup sprint events since then on Swedish snow. He has a 224 point lead in the overall World Cup standings over Goldberg, and he needs a margin of 300 points after the sprint to win the overall for the fourth time. Dolly has the most six, Svan five, Colonia, Dario has four. Um, they're the only people with more than him. He also has a chance to get that sprint globe. So there's some there's some quick Clabo facts. One thing I thought of when it comes to sprint events and Clabo, how is it that he has the number one qualifier every single time too? I mean, I, I Shanova has taken it like every once in a blue moon, he, Shanova will get it. Um, but Clabo almost always has that, and like. That amazes me because you you kind of seem, or at least I sort of feel like Clabo, part of his greatness is his ability to race. So being with other people, gauging where they are, and like making the move that wins the race, and in a qualifier by yourself, just trying to cover the course as fast as possible, it really demonstrates that, that he, is, he is better than that, better than anyone else at that as well. And uh, But you would think that occasionally a course just wouldn't really suit him that well or whatever. And, he, and Or even if it did, he'd just finish third because there are like 60 people lining up, you know, top 30 move on. And, and he, that he feels the need even sometimes to like, 
hammer it and be the number one guy. Like, why would it really matter? He could he could be the 29th seed and he's still going to win. So why does he always have to finish the number one? I just think that's kind of amazing. Like, does that demonstrate just how much faster he is, how much better he is? Is he like neurotic, you know, and like, I have to have the number one qualifier too. Like, he, he doesn't win any World Cup points for that. Oh, speaking of World Cup points, this is one thing you know, they change the rules so they have 100 points, 95 and on down. And, and so you don't gap people quite as much by winning. I think they maybe should reinstitute or institute a new rule that would give someone like a 100 point bonus if they win five events or, or no, actually this 100 point bonus to the person who who is first to winning like four or five events so that if you are like Clabo and you're winning a bunch of sprints, you somehow get rewarded for being that dominant. Like, I I like how the points are closer, but I still think a win is a lot harder than a second, which is, and it's way harder than a third. And so to have the 10-point difference there, whatever it is, where it's not that much, I think that does diminish the win enough that kind of bothers me. So I think they need to figure something out where they give a bonus to people who are dominant. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's five wins. Maybe it's three. I don't really know. You know, they can, statisticians can figure it out. But um, I think that's a little crazy. Like, Clabo could, you know, break a pole in in his quarter and place 28th, and Goldberg wins. All of a sudden, everything's different. The spring globe's up for grabs. And, like, who really deserves the spring globe? It's obviously Clabo. He's dominated so thoroughly. You know, it's crazy. And, and like, you know, you see the Alpine where they haven't changed that. Michaela Schifrin has wrapped up three globes before the World Cup finals even start. And part of that's like, well, yeah, she's been dominant. You know, she's been truly dominant and been winning a bunch. But Clavo has been winning at, at a higher rate than, than Schifrin. So, you know, and he is nowhere near like wrapping, wrapping this up. He's, he's going to have to ski well right up until the last day. Um. Well, I think that pretty much covers it. Oh, you know. I should throw a little pitch right now to the crowd. Here in Leadville, starting on Saturday, we have the Equinox Challenge taking place. 24 hours of Nordic skiing. Boom. 24 hours, Equinox Challenge. Is this the fourth event? I think it might be the fourth time. Let's see. I did it the first year when I was the COVID, before, yeah, it was the COVID year, right? Yeah, it was the COVID year. Ah, yes. I, um... I won the 100K that year. I don't know if I had the most distance, though. I remember I had to go home and take an Epsom salt bath in the middle of the day, and I came back at night and skied some. No, I don't think I won the overall, but I got some money for winning the... uh, Oh, maybe I did. Actually, it was kind of a smaller field. I might have also had the most distance skied. I'm not really sure, but then the next year, I missed the next year. The year I yeah I had a bunch of raises right before I was I was really wiped. The third year that was last year. Um, oh yeah, it was, it was quite hot. Every year that I've done it, it's been kind of hot. So the middle of the day it gets kind of slushy. It's it's really hard to keep grinding, and then it gets really fast at night. Looking at the forecast right now, it looks like a great weekend for skiing all day. I think we have the high of like twenty six to twenty nine. It might even be a little bit cold, like. Sunday morning, I saw a negative two. And if it doesn't get up super hot, I mean, like, you, I don't think we're going to have a freeze thaw action. So it might actually be the strategy for you, for those of you going into it, is to really ski consistently, ski well from 10 a.m. until it gets dark, you know, and you might actually have to, you might not be able to be skiing between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. And then, you know, hope that you can get out there and ski some in the morning. Not really sure. Some new things I heard it's going to be a 13K loop. So the pre past, I think we had a 7.9K or something on, on that order. It was a little bit shorter. So they're including links to Lake, I believe. Uh, Dan will probably kill me if I'm wrong on that. But yeah, set up to be a great event. You don't have to pay anything to be a part of it. So show up, have a good time. It's going to be a good time. I, I'm hoping to be there. However... I have to cover a Battle Mountain game at 11.30 and 3.30. So this is a huge blow to me. I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm trying to see if I can like somehow coordinate coverage in a different way um, because I do want to participate in the Equinox Challenge. Somehow I got to get over there. If not, I guess Sunday morning I'll be there at like 6 a.m. To, to get some Ks in. I do want to be a part of it. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a good little end-of-season event, and it looks like it's going to be good weather again for skiing throughout the day. So... 
There it is, a little bit of Leadville soundbite. Sorry, I can't give you a grooming report. I, we need a sponsor for a grooming report here in Leadville. The Mineral Bell, they've been out of Tennessee Pass. It's been it's been perfect the last couple days. Like, great classic striding, not even too windy. So that's been good. The Mineral Belt was not groomed uh, when we got a bunch of new snow. So you haven't been over there yet. Planning on going over there later tonight. But I'm sorry, I probably am not not going to upload a show and tell you how that grooming is. Although, I think some of our Grip Wax Nation fans are wondering, they're like, I'm going to come visit Leadville. What's the situation on the Mineral Belt? What's the grooming report? And uh, yeah, you know, it's it's always a little bit of a toss-up, but if you catch it on a great day, it's legendary. You know, you can you can tell all your relatives that you skied the Mineral Belt on a perfect day and saw the entire Mount Massive range. That's kind of just how it is. Uh, anyway, Hope you enjoyed the show. We'll try to get back here after the weekend, get another broadcast. Let's see if we can talk some junior nationals. Didn't really hop into that at all, and we've got a lot of great skiing there happening up in Alaska, so definitely want to touch on some of that next week as well. But for all of you out there, hopefully you can get out, get a nice ski on. I enjoy the spring weather where the snow is finally fast. And as I always say, keep on striving, keep on skiing.